Welcome to the infirmary, <laughs> Stonebridge Church. <laughs> We're doing our podcast from a low-level quarantine in my office. It's just, just, just sort of joking, but I don't know what happened, man. Uh, I don't know if it's just allergies, weather changes in Iowa, or what. But it's, like, we got, I got, we have some wrecked. sort of virus yeah. in our home. Yeah. Well, this is the In Context podcast. It's a weird way to start it, but my name is Keith Knight. I'm one of the pastors at Stonebridge Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And uh, as always, I'm joined by another one of our pastors. Brandon Levering, sucking the cough drops like, he's, <laughs> like his life depends on it. <laughs> I, was telling, uh, I was telling multiple people, I've told you this already, but um, for our listeners, I was telling people this weekend, our daughters usually take notes, but then they also draw pictures. And <laughs> one of my daughters, who's a particularly gifted artist, Drew a picture of a cough drop, and uh, it it said for Brandon, R.I.P. <laughs> oh, it hurts. It's yeah. so true. <laughs> and I'm in the uh, the wheeze. I'm in the wheeze scenario where I go to laugh, and my kids keep making fun of me. Like they sound like the grizzled old prospector on one of the uh, the old cartoons. The <laughs> <laughs> what was the dog? Motley. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. Uh, so. Uh, our podcast this morning will be fraught with sniffs and uh, the sound of a cough drop rattling around behind teeth. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad we uh, we were off last week. Um, last week was a busy week, obviously, if you're in church work. We've got uh, you know Holy Week, so we coming off of Palm Sunday, we have Good Friday service, and, uh, and uh, Resurrection Day celebration or Easter, depending on where you're at with all that stuff. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it was a good week, great week, uh, but a bunch of us came down with some sort of head stuff, head stuff, neck stuff um, yeah. over the weekend, so uh, so we're going to sound nasally, and uh, hopefully it won't affect our brains too much today, because we got a huge topic. It's kind of a big topic. This morning. Uh, we are in the book of Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews, we are looking at how Jesus is better than uh, than everything else, right? All the things that in the uh, the Old Covenant... Uh, you would look at as being good, right? Mm-hmm. You know, good mm-hmm. things that God had designed for the the good of His people. Now we see in Christ, uh, Christ is better than all those things that were good. He was the ultimate fulfillment of what was the the shadows of the things yeah. that came before. Yeah. Um, and this past weekend, we talked about uh, Jesus is the better sacrifice, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so we thought. Today's a better day than any to go into um, the the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, right? You bet. So if you don't, if you're not sure what substitutionary atonement is, Brandon, do you want to <laughs> well, give us the yeah. give us the twenty thousand foot view? So yeah, substitutionary atonement, sometimes referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. If you break each word down, it's really simple. Penal means having to do with a penalty, mm-hmm. right? So think of the penal system that we, you know, have in our society. Right. Uh, substitutionary means that it's something accomplished by a substitute, someone who takes our place. And atonement uh, is a sacrifice that either covers or cleanses sin. So you put it all together, the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement asserts that on the cross... Jesus Christ covered the cost of our sin, the atonement, by taking the penalty of our sin, right. penal, right. Uh, in our place right. as a substitute. Right. So it's, it's a pretty simple concept. And yet, historically, 
um, at least I would say modern history, um, it, it's come under suspicion and under fire from different segments of Christianity. Um, right. You know, you, you get uh, some folks who um, uh, have criticized it as being too new, like it, it was right. an invention of the Protestant Reformation right. in the 1600s. Before that, right. you know, uh, the claim in this, you know, Got a nice juicy quote from Augustine that would like to say otherwise. <laughs> but the claim is that uh, the church had always understood the cross as delivering us from, no, not from God's wrath, but from Satan's power and the forces right, of evil, right, kind right. of the Christus, Christus victor. victor. Yeah. yeah. Which is a totally true aspect of sure. the atonement. Yeah. Um, you know, others have criticized it for being too narrow, like it leaves no room for Christus victor right. or for uh, Christus exemplar, which would be you know, uh, an aspect of the atonement where Christ's sacrifice motivates us to love the way he has loved, which right. you also clearly see in Scripture. Sure. But probably the grosser uh, accusations or charges against it would be, you know, again, somewhat more modern. Right. You get some folks who would just flat out call uh, substitutionary atonement cosmic child, child abuse, abuse, right? right. And, um, but which... which Many of us would say is uh, has more to do with a, a bad Trinitarian theology. Maybe, oh yeah, than I mean, there's all sorts of else. problems. Yeah. There's all sorts of problems with it. But the idea that God would punish His own Son for the guilt of somebody else just mm-hmm. seems, you know, unloving or right. vindictive right. or whatever. And uh, you know, Al Mohler told a story one time when his first day. It, I don't remember if it was seminary or um, it was seminary. The New Testament studies class, uh, his professor explained the first day that there will be no bloody cross religion in this classroom. Hmm. It is beneath the dignity and self-respect to believe in a God who had to kill in order to forgive. Hmm. Like so, you get and and this is mostly coming from kind of your more uh, progressive mainline categories that. Um, but it, it infiltrates into even evangelicalism in different ways. You have, you know. Well, it has its one of its biggest histories is in the Anabaptist movement, right? Okay. So, like, and what a lot of uh, touchy feely kind of progressive evangelicalism now is is pretty much Anabaptist theology that's been teased out uh, even more to where they wouldn't consider themselves to be Anabaptists. But if you look at the Anabaptist doctrines, that's pretty much pretty what it is. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And so, um, you know, for, for many of us, the idea that somebody wouldn't believe this uh, sounds strange right. because we've just grown up. And, and so maybe there's, a, there's another ditch where people who have grown up in a church tradition that uh, elevates and, and delights in the doctrine of, of substitutionary atonement. The right. other ditch for us is to become too comfortable with it, yeah. to lose our awe. Right. I mean, we talk so much about the cross and so right. seeing so much about the blood that it just becomes noise, sure. and we lose our marvel at what God has actually done for us. And so I think no matter what your tradition, re- being mindful of the, com- the wonder and glory and absolute uh, just magnificent uh, love of God expressed through the substitutionary atonement right. of Christ. That's just right. worth always rehearsing and yeah. never allowing it to go stale. Well, we do, we lose, you know, to, to, the, to your point, we lose 
the the importance of God's love in that. Like if we if you spend too much time, just I mean, just to be honest, uh, many of us there's a certain sec- section of us Reformed people who are very aggressive. Sure. Like, mm-hmm. and Reformed theology can become almost almost glorying in the in the wrath of God as being necessary because of the sins of human beings, which it absolutely is. But to take away, to completely toss John three sixteen mm-hmm. out, yeah, uh, you know, be, because it it seems a little too, you know, sign on a football game. It seems a little <laughs> to be anyone who will, you know, can mm-hmm. come. Uh, I think to a certain extent that there are some who get so afraid of it being too wishy washy mm. that we tend to suck the love out of substitutionary atonement, totally. and it makes Jesus, uh, it makes Jesus an a hesitant savior who argues with the father in the garden, please don't do this to me. Yeah. Which is a really, it's, it's a very short sighted view yeah. of, of Let, substitutionary. Let's maybe atonement. start there. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> what are, <laughs> we warned you. Let's start there. Let's start there. <laughs> Pass me another cigarette. Kaiser so say. <laughs> um, what are, what are some of the Trinitarian problems with that, that lead to either a misunderstanding or a hesitancy toward penal substitutionary atonement? Well, one would be, like, if I... Even even when you look at the idea of um, uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac, mm-hmm. okay, it's it's a type, right? It's, it's sort of a forecasting of things to come. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same thing. Yeah. It's God telling him, I want you to do this. And Abraham taking Isaac and saying, hey, we're going to go do this. What what happens there is not the same. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. There, there's a sense in which there's a, a willingness for Abraham to be like, well, this child doesn't belong to me, so I'm going to do what you want me to do. That gets dragged into this mm. substitutionary atonement thing too. Like how, how could God even, why would God even ask him to do that? There's a misunderstanding of that. But then there's also a misunderstanding that that's the same thing that's happening with God. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, God capriciously is slaying his son who has no choice in the matter, um, there's no will involved there, and it's like that's yeah. the cosmic child abuse. Jesus was, even when we look at to, to look at it from a Trinitarian perspective, Jesus is God. Mm-hmm. It's like the same nonsense when people are like, "Well, Jesus never talked about this or this." It's like Jesus wrote the Bible. <laughs> like Jesus was there. Jesus was there when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Jesus mm-hmm. was there when uh, you know the firstborn were mm-hmm. killed in Egypt. Like Jesus was not kind of watching the father do everything without being, you know, yeah. party to what was happening. Yeah. To dissociate father, son, and Holy Spirit mm-hmm. just in certain doctrines is tremendously damaging to all of oh, Scripture. Absolutely. But but it also is, it's just untrue. So when we look at Trinitarian theology, you're not saying that the father took the son and by force made him die for the sins mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, for of other people. That's not what we're talking yeah. about. And so even his his request in the garden if there's any other way that this is, you know, nevertheless not my will but thine be done. That's not a that's not a reluctant child asking, "Please don't beat me, Father." That's yeah, not yeah, what's happening. Yeah. Um, Jesus went to the cross. He he announced early in his ministry, "I've come to die." He told his father, he, <clears throat> "This is yeah. nothing he was doing." against his own will, yeah. he came for that very reason, 
and the Holy Spirit as well is complicit mm-hmm. in the whole thing. Yeah, Jesus they, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, into yeah. temptation. Jesus is led by the Spirit to the cross. Like you can't, you can't look at it as father kills son unwillingly, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They were the you know father, son, and Holy Spirit planned this right. together. Right. Jesus willingly gave himself. He was in on the plan. He you know. Yeah, that that idea of the father acting maliciously against his son in order to act graciously toward others is just completely foreign to scripture. The right. whole thing was love. Right. The whole thing, um, and and it's love ultimately, uh, you know, that moves him to bear that, uh, which is absolutely incredible. Right. You know, so so by creating a, a caricature of of the atonement as kind of this divine child abuse. You're insulting, but you're insulting Jesus in two ways. One, right. that he was an unwilling victim. Right. And two, you're robbing him of the greatest act of love he's ever committed. Yes. That that he went there willingly. It wasn't and that's that's the funny part about that that position or understanding, is they want to emphasize the love of it. Right. Um, and 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 de-emphasize that there's any sort of sin bearing happening. But the love like Without his willingness, there is no love. Right, right. You can't have, uh, you can't just have the love without right. the willingness. Right, and and um, right, and that that willingness specifically to bear sin, which is probably the next challenge people run into. Sure, he went willingly and lovingly, but he wasn't really dying for sins. Right. He was just dying as an example, right. or he was dying for sins in the sense of because of the evil of the world. Not so much bearing punishment for the sins of people. That's right. another common understanding. Right. Um, what do you? What? How do we think through that biblically? Well, I mean, so again, uh, I think it's John. John Stott is not a fan of removing the love. I've read a couple of his stuff before. He he is very insistent that you know that we not remove the love from substitutionary atonement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we not just make it bloody and uh and completely you know about about God's wrath it yeah. does have to be about God's love but what happens what happens in a lot of doctrines because we've had so much time that we've almost we've almost investigated such things to death, right? Yeah. And yeah. so we dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper and find new arguments. And what happens is we dissociate a number of things that are happening on the cross from one another. Mm-hmm. And so if you do that, then it's very easy to, to hyper-focus on something. So, for example, like Christ's death and the, the, the necessary death of Christ Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis, Yeah. right? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yeah. And death entered the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at, from that point, I mean, even Ezekiel chapter eighteen, the soul who sins shall die. It's not. It's not the fathers to the sons, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. every person, the son's not father's not responsible for the son's sins. Son's not responsible for the father's sins. The soul who sins shall die. And then at the end of eighteen, it's like, hey, if you can make for yourself a new heart and a new soul, then you won't die, right? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but that curse of death is transferred all the way through. It's it's not simply about um, appeasing God's appeasement of God's mm-hmm, wrath towards mm-hmm. sin. It's not just about that. It is about the consequence of sin. Yeah. And the consequence of sin and being left in our sins is not just death, but eternal death. Yeah. So what's happening on the cross is not just a substitute. It's not just. It is a substitution. For mm-hmm. our sin, 
It's not just a substitution for our sin. It's also the, the victory over death, Absolutely. ultimately. Yeah. So, but if you dissociate that and just say that the primary thing of the cross is the appeasement of God's wrath, that's not the full story. Yeah, you do. And, and that's maybe sometimes a legitimate criticism uh, toward folks who love substitutionary atonement, just the imbalance that we fall into. Sure. We're so excited about it that we do minimize those other elements of what Christ accomplished right. in terms of that right. victory over sin and evil, in terms of that example of love. Um, well, the resurrection that comes after. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only reason that we can have a relationship with the Father is not just because Christ died, but because he rose. Absolutely. So, like, if there's no resurrection... That substitutionary death doesn't mean anything. Correct. I mean, that's the whole point yeah. of the of what he, the author of Hebrews is saying is it's there is one sacrifice for all time that can and there's no other sacrifice after Christ. Yeah. But that's not just because of the perfection of the sacrifice of Christ. It's because, as some theologians have said, the check cleared. Yeah. Right. The check yeah. was written on the cross, but it cleared when Jesus rose from the dead. You know, God said, yes. "Okay, I am. This is done." For yep. all time, it's done. Yep. The great vindication in the right. resurrection, yeah. And if you dissociate resurrection from the from the substitutionary death of Christ, you've got real problems. Yeah. Because then you've got, okay, I've got a sacrifice that was perfect, but how in the world am I supposed to gain access to that because I don't have new life? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, so yeah. there that's the that and that's where you see the love of God and the wisdom of God, as as Paul would say, is the plan was not just to deal with the the um, the record of sin. Mm-hmm. The plan was to deal with the effects yes. of sin yes. in the life of a believer and the presence of sin in the future of a believer. Amen. Right. Amen. So, yeah. And I think another important aspect in in terms of um, so so clearly the the cross is not only that substitutionary atonement. Uh, it's not less than that substitutionary Correct. atonement. Right. And one of the one of the helpful um, elements of that you mentioned you know goes all the way back to genesis with the problem the right. solution also goes clear back yeah, uh, in right. the scriptures you know right. you have hints of it in genesis maybe with the with the garden and, yep. and uh, the clothes that the lord provides but uh you have not just a hint you have a uh a type a a true expression of it with the passover sure is Israel. Yeah. i mean you have the whole Absolutely. system of sacrifices right that come in Leviticus, some of which three of the five sacrifices in Leviticus one to seven are designed to address sin in some way: the burnt offering, the sin offering, the I think the guilt offering. Right. But even before that, uh, and, and the burnt offering seems to be the one that kind of is more propitiatory, uh, which is there's a there's a fun word. So when we're talking about substitutionary <laughs> atonement, uh, is the cross a is it is the cross a propitiatory sacrifice, right. a sin atoning? Sacrifice, a sin-bearing right. sacrifice, but the Passover lamb—that's that to me is just so critical because when you think about, you know, there's there's a long um, modern tradition. I don't know that it goes back before modern biblical scholarship. Um, I it may I just don't know, but at least in modern biblical scholarship, there's this understanding that the Exodus was primarily a salvation. From a situation, right? Slavery, right? right. Mm-hmm. So this was God rescuing a nation from a bad situation, whereas the cross is, you know, rescuing us from our sin or something. Sure. But that's a that's a pretty thin, uh, and I would say pretty big misreading of the Exodus. Right. Um, 
Now, you look at the promises in chapter 3 of Exodus, chapter 6, and you look at God's promise of salvation. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to make you my people, have a relationship. I'm going to bring you into the land, give you an inheritance. He doesn't say, I'm going to atone for your sin. Right. <laughs> but you right. look at the 10 plagues. Yeah. The first nine plagues, Israel has to do nothing in order to not be affected by them. Right. <laughs> you know, frogs, right. the blood, the darkness. Right. Um, all they got to do is sit back and watch God do his thing. Right. The 10th plague is different. Yeah. Something has to happen. Otherwise, Israel will be affected by it. Right. Because it's the 10th plague where God finally judges Egypt's sin. Right. And you have these great creation reversals where he just gets their attention and, and, and there's, it's, it's judgment-esque, but he's not, he's not bringing the penalty of sin. He's not bringing death yet until the 10th plague, the plague of the firstborn. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to chapter 4 of Exodus where God says, Israel's my firstborn son, let my people go, let yeah. my son go that they yeah. may serve me. Well, Israel needs to be covered because they're just as guilty of, right. as Egypt right. of their sin. So when God goes to deal with sin, Israel has to have some sort of atonement right. in order to not be swept up in that wrath. Right. And so the Passover lamb dies in the place of the firstborn. Right. The blood is on the doorpost and so on. That is substitutionary atonement. Right. Um, that is this great pattern right there in the second book of the Bible uh, in full array. And you see that same uh, dynamic picked up elsewhere. Isaiah 53 is, of course, uh, uh, a very uh, powerful expression of it where it's... It, all of a sudden, it's now a king and a servant who's mm -hmm. going to be that substitute. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's a pattern in the Old Testament that prepares us for what you find in the Gospels and what you find in the letters. Right. Uh, the, the, the Reformers did not make this up out of thin air. Uh, this no. is, this yeah. is in the context of Scripture yes. very clearly. Yeah, and the, 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 uh, one of the dangers is to assume that all of the, you know, that the... Uh, a group of church fathers were right. There's there's a number of things that Augustine was influential on, and I don't agree with him on. Mm -hmm. And I think was a was a wandering away from some biblical doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. So just because Augustine may have influenced some people on some things, doesn't mean that all those views were right that a certain group of church fathers may have held. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. a danger that we may too. That yeah. the maybe the Reformation was in a lot of ways return to things that were uh, initially. Biblically, you know, held oh, by no, yeah, early no, Christians, right? No and question. So the the uh, the knock that like, well, this just started in the Reformation is like, it's both untrue and unfair. Yeah. Because yeah. there were a lot of things in Reformation that were corrections of really bad doctrines. Yeah. You know, or doctrines that had been lost. So that in and of itself, you're right. Like we have to we have to ultimately, and again, the reason we do this podcast and the way that we try to orient ourselves here at the church is we really want people to be able to look in scripture and mm -hmm. say, this is where I'm getting my ideas mm -hmm. from. This is what's influencing yeah. my thinking. And to the point of the author of Hebrews, that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, yes. the reason that we're in this yes. is because, you know, in, in chapter 10, he's, he's talking about the perfect sacrifice. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things mm -hmm. to come and not the actual form of those realities. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. So, I mean, he, yeah. he's going through and he's like, all these things that we see in the Old Testament, yes. like these are necessary to point us to what was ultimately going to be better. You know, the yeah. wisdom of God that this was 
teased out over time that God was showing us the um, uh, the His good law, right? Mm-hmm. The way in which we were completely unable to keep it, and mm-hmm. ultimately we had to have something more than us being able to accomplish yeah. it. Someone had to accomplish it on our behalf. That was God, right? That's good. But the whole point that the author of Hebrews is making is you need to look to the Old Testament. To understand Hebrews, you do have to understand something about the history of Israel. No question. In order to really understand what no God question. is driving at. And to our point, like with even with substitutionary atonement, if you don't have a decent grasp on Old Testament theology, it's going to be very hard for you to accept substitutionary atonement mm-hmm. um, because it seems so out of character with what you think God would do or be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so to that point, what other passages of Scripture, whether Old Testament or New, would you recommend that somebody spend some time in, dig into on this topic? And, and of course, there's, there's a couple <coughs> aspects to it. Digging into it in terms of understanding, is it really there? You know, that's obviously an important question. Mm-hmm. But there's also the, okay, and what difference does it make? Like, why is this so important to us? So right. passages of Scripture where we see it unfolded, right. and then maybe where we see it applied. Yeah, I mean, Romans would be, the whole book of Romans would be <laughs> yeah. pretty essential. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a study in salvation. I mean, Peter Peter deals with it in First Peter a couple places. First Peter um, chapter 2, um, uh, verse 21 through 25, you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that... You should follow in his steps. He didn't commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he didn't threaten, but committed himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the mm-hmm. tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounding, you have been healed. And that's that's one of those verses that we take out of context, right? Like, the by his stripes, you are healed. By his wounding, you are healed. That's not... A physical he- mm-hmm. that's not a physical healing that's a spiritual yeah, healing like yeah. he was marred so that you wouldn't have to be yeah. um, for you were like sheep going straight you've returned but like you know he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree having died to sins we might live yeah right that what we could call the the great exchange yeah. like yeah. And in uh, 318 to uh, Peter uh, 318 for Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual yeah, realm. So, yeah. I mean, those are little little snippets, mm-hmm. but what yeah. would you recommend? I mean, obviously, Romans, as right. you said. I think I think you see elements of it in, in John 10, where mm-hmm. Jesus is yep. the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's elements of, like, Leviticus we've mentioned, uh, Ezekiel um, that you mentioned... I mean, Romans Romans really is the pivot foot in a lot of ways, um, particularly Romans 3, 21 yeah. to 26. It's yeah. just hard to find a more clear statement right. of it. Um, and, you know, contextually here, Paul is talking about the righteousness of God and, and um, uh, specifically, you know, one of the challenges of uh, some of the, the people he's writing to is the sense that, it, well, if God is allowing the Gentiles in, he's kind of broken his word, hasn't he? You know, and, <laughs> right. and so Paul's defending the righteousness of God right. by showing us how our righteousness in God comes not by the law, but through faith in Christ. Right. And, and here is kind of the heart, in some ways, of his argument. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then he describes this redemption. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, this atoning sacrifice, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why is it that Ancient Israel, despite their uh, bumbling and, and sin, uh, why will we still see Abraham and Moses and so on in, in heaven, right. even though the the sufficient sacrifice had not yet been offered? God has was forbearing their sins till Christ would come. Right. right. Um, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so this... The whole thing turns on this redemption that, that, uh, of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by right. his blood. Right. Uh, and, and the context of wrath is clear in the book. Um, one, that's what he's forbearing in right. his divine forbearance. He passed over for him. He did not punish them. Two, you get it later if you keep reading in chapter 5, uh, where we are saved uh, this is uh, verse 9. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Right. And, and, and that, you know, that may, might sound nasty that God has wrath. But, but going back to something you said earlier, wrath is really uh, part of God's love. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you love someone, there's a holy anger that stirs up right. when that person is harmed, wronged, right. in danger. And right. sin is the most deadly thing possible. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, just to, to quote Augustine, uh, here, <laughs> uh, had God not hated sin and our death, he would not have sent his son to bear and abolish it. Right. Christ endured death as man and for man, so also son of God as he as he was, ever living in his own righteousness, but dying for our offenses, he submitted as man and for man to bear the curse which accompanies death. Right. And he died in the flesh which he took in bearing our punishment. So also, while ever blessed in his own righteousness, he was cursed for our offenses and the death which he suffered in, ba- suffered in bearing our punishment. Yeah. That was that is love. Like right. the, you know, greater love has no man than this that that he lay his life down for his friends, and right. so. Uh, God, God's love is both in his hatred of sin and in his provision to rescue us from sin. Right. Both of those are the love of God for his people. Yeah, and there is a fantastic arrogance in being so opposed to penal substitutionary atonement that you actually present yourself as though if, we're, if, God, if the Bible really said God was like that, who would want to serve a God like that? Oh my! Yes. You, you know what I mean. But that, but that's what I've. The, a lot of times, what I've heard from you know even friends who who don't buy it mm-hmm. um, is like, well, what? Who would want to serve that kind of capricious God? The assumption that you make is that like, love can only be understood from your vantage point. Mm-hmm. Like you, like and and God, you know, God can't possibly operate out of what you yeah. say love is. It's a it's a reductionistic view. And it, quite honestly, is probably, to your point, if you have ever been in a situation where someone that you love has been unjustly hurt, the loving response 
is to be angry about it. Yeah. Like it's not practical to think that like, because God is loving, he would never be angry about sin. He would never be angry mm-hmm. about offense mm-hmm. because really like God's, um, God's wrath towards sin is his anger at, at knowing, you know, honestly, like what's best for us is to have an unbroken relationship with God. Yeah. So our sin keeps us from experiencing really yeah. like the, the joy of what God created us for. So I, I don't, the, again, like if you're listening to this, the primary, if you hear somebody talking about penal substitutionary atonement um, from a negative perspective, probably the first, the first thing is going to be like if, you know, if the, this satisfaction, penal satisfaction for sin doesn't leave any room for forgiveness or grace. This is, is how it, it well that's I know but, but that's how it would be pitched <laughs> mm-hmm. and what they mean by forgiveness or grace is if God is really forgiving and gracious he should just mm-hmm. be able to say hey it's forgiven no big deal that's not actually forgiveness and that's not actually grace um, to like it would be unfair for Hitler to not have to pay for his crimes yeah. everybody knows that because of justice yeah so a lot that's, of times that's the other that's side the, of the key justice is justice you in order to completely abandon the idea of substitutionary atonement you also have to almost abandon the idea of justice as being good. Absolutely. Right. So. Absolutely. Uh, which is ironic because folks who tend to be skeptical of substitutionary atonement tend are to... big on injustice. Yeah, they yeah. tend to be big on justice. Right. And yeah. so, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a justice of, of us trying to right the wrongs of others sure. versus the holding to account. And right. justice is both. Right. And, and, and again, that's in a lot of ways, that's what Paul is defending in Romans. Yes. yes, he's answering the question, how can a sinful person have a relationship with the Holy God? No question, justification by faith. But the re- that's, that argument he makes in Romans is his answer to the question of how can God still be righteous right. Right. when the Gentiles are now right. coming in. Right. And uh, because he has dealt, I mean, he has upheld his justice and his mercy right. at the cross. Right. They come together perfectly. Um, so what's, what's lost? If, if we were to abandon this doctrine mm-hmm. or hide it in a closet because we're embarrassed about it or right. something like that, what's lost in our, in our faith, in the daily lived faith of the believer? Uh, gratitude would be the biggest of those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is something that it's so strange. Like you mentioned, you know, those who are very strongly against injustice, right? To the, the crazy thing about people who are super pro-justice is they really want people who are unjust to be punished. Yes, really want. Big I mean, the whole re- the whole reason cancel, cancel culture, culture yeah. exists is, and it doesn't matter. There is nothing. And it's no so redemption. funny because it's like substitutionary <laughs> atonement is wrapped up, even if they don't even believe in Jesus, because there's like there is no way that you can be redeemed from what you, for what you've yep. done. And we would say, absolutely right. There's no way that I can redeem anything. Like if I've done something horrid, not only in the temporal is there is there not much I can do to redeem myself. Really, we all know that I can't be the source of my own redemption. Yeah. I can't be someone else has to yeah. say, hey, I'm going to take the brunt of this. You know, it, it, we know that it's unjust. Um, so what, what you lose is the grounds on which to be thankful yeah. to God for providing a way. Like yeah. we don't see, we, you won't see your own sin rightly, and you won't see forgiveness through, um, through the lens of you being completely undeserving of mm-hmm. it. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... You, just think through all that that Paul affirms and, and even glories in in the book of Romans right. when he establishes that that 
justification through faith, which is on the basis of Christ's propitiation, right. on the basis of his substitutionary atonement, then you just follow the follow the argument from there through Romans, <laughs> right? Right. If Jesus is your substitute, you're blessed, right? Romans right. 4, yep. blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Yeah, right. Um, you don't have to live in guilt and shame yeah. because your lawless deeds are forgiven. Right. You don't have to perform for God. Right. Chapter 4, verses 4, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as right. due, but we don't have to do that. Yeah, it's a free gift. Um, you have peace with God, Romans yeah. 5.1. Uh, you have access to God, Romans 5.2. Yep. Hope of glory, you know, just keep going through Romans yeah. 5, you yeah. know, you're loved. Um, you're dead to sin, right. chapter 6. Right. Jesus is your substitute. You are dead to sin. You've right. died with him and uh, been raised, been set free from sin, chapter 6, uh, 17. It, Romans 8, 1, you don't have to live in fear of condemnation. That's my favorite verse. That's it's it's so, yeah. so good. Um, Especially right after the end of chapter 7. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Paul knew what he was doing. <laughs> he did. Oh, man. You have the Spirit of God in you, 810. You have a new father, 815, if mm-hmm. Jesus is your substitute. For you to not receive the spirit of slavery, to fall back in fear, you receive the spirit of adoption as mm-hmm. sons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a new inheritance, chapter 8. You have hope in the midst of suffering, chapter 8. Mm-hmm. Hope that everything will be made right in the end, chapter 8. Uh, someone, you know, the Spirit of God interceding for you, Jesus himself interceding for you. Your victory is secure. God's love for you is secure. That's all chapter yeah. 8. Yeah. Uh, a mission to tell others, chapter 10. Your worship is acceptable yeah. to God, chapter yeah. 12. And that yeah. and the whole book of Hebrews. Yeah, uh, especially Hebrews. Uh, you don't yeah. have to seek revenge when someone wrongs you, chapter 12, verse 19. Right. You're free to love regardless of what you get in return, chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It's a pretty good one. And that's just Romans, right? <laughs> so, I mean, and... and Substitution is is caught up also in the sen- the concept of union with Christ. Yes, you know, right. it is the basis of our union because of what He's done. He's dealt with our sins, so therefore we are now when we're united with Him in His death and His resurrection, we receive the benefit of that death and resurrection. And right. so, it's not to say that substitution is the only basis for all of those wonderful things, but those wonderful things are not possible for the believer apart from our sin having been dealt with, mm-hmm. having been punished and put away from us through the penal punishment substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Mm-hmm. And to, to that point too, Hebrews chapter 10, where where you were wrapping up this weekend is not just not just the the live effect of having our sin forgiven, right? I, verse 17, I'll never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Mm. He never brings it up again. It's amazing. Great, it's like, no, that's great. If it was just for, like, here's, I've often thought if it was just like a forgiveness thing where it's like, yeah, no big deal. It's like we do with each other. Yeah. It's like, you know, if you have a spousal conflict and you're like, you remember what you said last time? <laughs> you ever done that? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> you remember, right? And the fact that because of what Christ has done for us, it's just gone. Yes. I mean, it's as far as the east is from the yeah. west. It's the bottom of the sea. Um, but then, you know, the, the fulfillment of the covenant and up in verse 16, this is the covenant I'll make with him. I will put my laws on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. It's not just having our sins forgiven. It's like, to your point, it's having a whole new nature mm-hmm. because we have a high priest mm-hmm. 
we have his life, like uh, mm-hmm. he's made that exchange and that we take his life, he takes our death, we take his life, everything changes yeah. because of substitutionary atonement. Yeah. It really does. Um, and so, you know, the, the counsel that I always give, like to people who have objections is, like, go back to scripture, read the Old Testament, yep. read Romans, yep. read Hebrews, mm-hmm. then come back to me and tell me what your, what your problem with substitutionary atonement is. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, so. Absolutely. It's a good word. Yeah. Well, man, I love these, uh, these like deep doctrinal ones are good. You may have made more questions. Uh, maybe something we said like stimulates another question in your brain. Uh, by all means, you're, you're welcome to come up to us on a weekend and say, hey, I had a question about this. We'd love to talk to you. But again, if you want to submit uh, questions for consideration um, that uh, we can talk about on the podcast, we'd love to do it. Hopefully this has been an encouragement to you. Um, most of all, let it be an encouragement. Don't just listen to what Brandon and I tell you. Go get in your word. Read it for yourself. You'll come up with a lot more questions, I guarantee you, but you'll find a lot of really great, rich answers as well. So uh, be in the word, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.